0: Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran.
1: Well, kind of. Uh, Not necessarily Ingrid Cochran here right now, but I am Matthew Portell. The director of communities at Paces Connection. And I am normally the co host of our amazing podcast, but today I'm going to be the head host um, to ensure that uh, Ingrid can make sure she's taking care of the things she needs to take care of. So I cannot wait uh, for this episode. This month we have been talking about mental health awareness. And we've taught last week we talked to Dr. or the week before we talked to Dr. Bob Sage about hope. Um, because when we talk about mental health awareness, there's, there's always, uh, there can, there can be a negative connotation. There can be that, that, that this is a, it is a crisis, but at the end of the day, there's so much hope and, and potential of support, um, through these, uh, these, these experiences and, and these, uh, uh, the mental health awareness for each of us. So today we're going to be talking to Rebecca Lewis Pankratz who works uh, in both communities and schools across the US to truly solve poverty and heal trauma, I will be honest and tell you Rebecca I considered a a colleague and a friend. um, So this is going to be a real authentic true conversation. She does all of her work by helping brilliant and caring leaders create sustain sustainable ecosystems of resilience through building better relationships. And I've seen this in action. Rebecca has eight ACEs, which she's lived out as an adult with addiction, domestic violence, poverty, and pain. She captivates audiences with her ability to weave concepts into stories and helps people understand what is typically, typically getting in the way of adopting the movement of trauma-informed schools. More importantly, Rebecca helps participants identify where they are, where they want to go, and how they want to get there. She's a master facilitator, a generous storyteller, and it has an uncanny way of helping people boil down and absorb deep concepts about the brain, behavior, and healing. Rebecca experienced a lifetime of trauma and poverty, and through access to buffering relationships, she's healed from both and continues to light the path for others. So Rebecca, welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma. We are so glad to have you. So tell us the
2: Rebecca story. Oh, Matthew, it's an honor to be here today. And so I was sitting there kind of thinking as you read that really clean, fancy bio. And I was like, oh, yeah. And probably the real me is, um, you know, I used to be a junkie. I was a D-teen drunk. I'm a, I was a single mom that had three different boys by three different dads. Uh, I was, before I had my children, I was in a domestic violence relationship for 13 years and was in that cycle of going to hiding and go back and go into hiding and go back, um, from the trailer park, from the hood. And, you know, I don't say those things, um, with any shame, like those are my people. And I always just kind of let folks know that, um, when I escaped out of addictions and poverty and chaos it was deeply important to me that I turned around and grabbed my people and brought them into a new space. Like I didn't want to go build a life and kind of button that up and act like it didn't happen or act like that was a long time ago. So I'm really intentional about still living in multiple worlds so that we can build bridges. Right. Um, So that's my story, I think.
1: Yeah. And I think that's important. Right. And that's that connection. And you and I were talking before about how important, relationships are and how important life experiences and lived experiences are. And so that's what we're going to be digging into. And we're going to be talking about all those things that you just mentioned, and how that plays out in not only individuals, but communities and systems Mm -hmm. when we're talking about the impact of mental health. Um, Because I think it's fair to say all of those experiences had an impact on your own mental health and those potentially even around you. Mm -hmm. So what are, the, what are the barriers that you know, families may have or, or communities or, or individuals may have uh, to healing and support and even potential post-traumatic growth? What, from your experiences and, and the communities that you work with and what are those barriers and, and how, do, how do communities and individuals overcome them?
2: You know, I think there's multiple um, different roadblocks. And so when you experience poverty as an adult, uh, you're constantly met with barrier after barrier and setback after setback. Uh, you know, one of the first things that we can always talk about, of course, is access. I mean, don't have money, I don't have health insurance. Um, and the other thing that I think is kind of a hidden elephant in the room for families and communities to understand is that there's a huge barrier of mistrust and of fear. And of being treated um, as a defective person in need uh, t- to get some access to these things. And so, you know, an example of that, I always kind of talk about gosh, it was probably in the late 70s, the early 80s that we kind of brought mandated reporting into schools. And so, parents um, who desperately need the hope and the resources that a school system and the people inside of that building can bring to truly bring a family out of hiding. I mean, honestly, that, that, that idea that if you know too much about us and how bad it really is, we're not safe. And so when I think about the barriers that are getting in the way of my people really being able to access mental health resources, um, Hmm. I think, you know, getting health insurance and getting resources in a community like providers in a community that are close enough that I can drive to. I mean, those are all kind of easy things to think through, but in the community that I live in of 14,000 people, there are families that do have insurance, but there's only one mental health provider that really serves that type of insurance. And there's been a lot of broken relationships and a lot of broken trust there. So families don't have And the other thing, Matthew, that I would say is when I work with a lot of families, they're like, I went to therapy once and I had a bad experience. And so therapy is not good for me. Or I did some mental health work and um, they threatened to take my kids away or they threatened to lock me up. And so people start to put up walls around stepping into a healing space of providers that would would typically do um, some some of those kind of therapy sessions. And so I think we have a lot of work to do to really go and listen to families and say what is it like for you in your community where you live and what are some of the reasons that um you're not getting the supports that you need to start to work on some of these um mental health challenges brain health challenges, right? Well, and and we we had um
1: Melissa Merritt who is the uh, CEO of uh, Child Prevent America and we talked about a lot of these pieces and one of those was the reporting that you just talked about Mm -hmm. and you know I, I, I looked up and did a little bit of research before we got on today and I was looking at just the percentage of children who are in poverty right and and I was looking at there was in February of this year, there were estimated over 12 million kids Mm -hmm. in poverty, right? Mm -hmm. And yet poverty doesn't necessarily mean neglect and abuse, but it commonly is looked at as neglect and abuse. And I was also looking at the impact of the stimulus pieces that were happening during COVID. And there was a drastic Decline of of children who were experiencing poverty during those times of support, financial support, and I think it even goes beyond financial support. There was access to food. There was access to increase uh, f- uh, 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 the food the the food support. Right. There was access to all these, and we saw this drastic decline. And when you're talking about barriers, I think some of the basic needs are mm. barriers. Um, And when we've we've already noticed that when that's provided, it has a drastic decline. And then I looked at even in January from April of twenty one to January of twenty two. By January of twenty two, it jumped right back up because those supports began to be pulled back. Mm -hmm. So how do you see support being placed for families and and what could we do
2: differently? You know, I think that there's a lot of complexities to that question. And, um, you know, it, it's very interesting to I've done some work in the last census so not the one we just have. But in 2010, I spent a lot of time digging in there trying to get a better picture of what was happening. And I would say that um, there are uh, how many fam- you said, 120 million kids are experiencing poverty in the United States, which is about the same rate that it was. Um, when i was digging into that and a third of those kids are experiencing what i consider abject poverty in the united states and those are families that are making about a thousand dollars a month and so what is happening in the homes is that the parents the caregivers the grandparents are always extremely hyper focused on keeping the shelter making sure the food hits the table keeping gas in the car dealing with transportation dealing with laundry and so when you think about some of the positive childhood experiences, like you don't have the bandwidth to manage all of that. And then we just have tons of families that are doing it on their own. So lots of single moms, single dads, um, aging grandparents. And so, you know, I do think that during the pandemic, when we had just this abundance in our communities for families that had been in survival mode, it was a really huge breathing place for them. And I think that families actually were like, Oh my gosh, there's food provided oh my gosh, there's some money here. We're not going to be homeless. Oh my gosh, there's, you actually aren't supposed to evict me right now. And we're not dealing with a lot of the stressors of public education for our kids. And so I saw a lot of families that were just really connecting at a level that I hadn't seen before because a lot of that toxic stress was taken away from them. So I think we did a really good job in our country of buffering some of our most at-risk kiddos during the pandemic. What our country doesn't really have the stomach for, though, Matthew, is the idea of doing that long-term. And so we still have a lot of different belief systems that are keeping us stuck, and families are just trapped in survival mode, right? It's just, you know, get a step forward, get knocked back eight, get a step forward, get knocked back eight. And so uh, there's lots going on there. Yeah, and I think going back to even
1: what we were talking about of reporting is, you know. Reporting needs to, and we we talked about this in in previous episodes about support, not judgment, but support. How can we support, right? Um, because that is the imperative part uh, that that we we continue to miss the mark on in mm-hmm. a lot of places and spaces where a lot of that a lot of the the Department of Children's Services statewide looks at in a. The reporting is made in a judgmental way of, you know, they're a bad parent or they're not doing this or their child doesn't have this. And so therefore, they're bad people or bad parents when really what you just described and what you have experienced, it was you were just trying to survive or people are just trying to survive. in Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the very base of that, and that is food, shelter and and. Mm -hmm. I know you've experienced that with you a, within your own family of what it's like to be in that space. So how did that impact you? Did you, did you see that as support when, when uh, Department of Children's Services was involved and in what your life experience was at that time?
2: Well, the interesting thing about um, when you're dealing with resources and getting them from the state is there's a lot of paperwork that goes with that. And so, you know, in my lifetime, I am, I'm 48 years old and I have moved 76 times and that does not count the times that I lived in a car or slept on someone's couch. Right. Um, and so, you know, I did, when you were asking that, I was like, oh yeah, I don't know how many times I was in Walmart with, um, a grocery cart full of food. Cause food stamps came in and, you know, typically you shop for a month when you, um, Are experiencing poverty. And I'd swipe that card and it wouldn't work because I'd forgot to turn in a piece of paperwork. Right. And so the system isn't very compassionate. And then I would call, it'd be on a Saturday, right. And I call Monday morning and I'd be like, look, my kids are hungry. And the lady would be like, you know, you should really turn in the pieces of paperwork we ask for. And sometimes, Matthew, literally things did not get sent out correctly. Sometimes it was on me. Like I'll take full ownership of that. Um, And so just working with families to get services and the amount of documentation that they need you know families it's really common that they don't have all their kids social security cards they don't have the birth certificates they've lost them in a move a landlord has kept them so there's all of these barriers that really keep people um, from accessing some of the supports that are out there and I would say that um when you talk about there's this judgment that these are bad families and bad parents you know looking back matthew and being in that space i would think that i believed that i believed i was a bad mom i believed that um, i needed to hide and i believed that if people found out what was really happening that they would take my kids from me and i believe there was something fundamentally broken inside of me because i had intelligence and I was a hard worker. I got my first job at 13, moved out at 15, left home, you know, was on my own. I was a hard worker. So it wasn't that I wasn't industrious and it wasn't that I didn't have, you know, the needed intelligence. And so you sit as a person experiencing this and you watch the world around you. And I would just think, why can't I get that? Why can't I get that for my kids? And then while you're thinking and noticing that there's all of these um there's a whole different I always kind of talked about poverty is like an island in the middle of town and you have to get off the island every day to go do things and everybody else is living this different experience but you know you got to go back to the island and the boats don't work and there's the bridges are broken you know just knowing that I didn't want my kids to inherit a space on that island And not knowing how to get them off, and also being terrified of the systems and the people inside of the systems who might have been able to teach me. And so, you know, as far as mental health, um, I always, you know, kind of looked back and thought I never had time to be depressed. I didn't have time to let anxiety take over because I was running so fast. I have seen families, though, that at some point they just kind of sit down and give up. And then society will judge that family extremely hard, right? And I'm like, no, that person gave up. That person isn't over there trying to take from the system, trying to take from their community. That person never found a way to contribute and self-actualize. And, um, and you know, then the other thing, Matthew, that I think is really important to bring to the conversation is, I think that families and kids need support. And I think that You know, food and shelter and healthcare are really important for those things. But I also think that the missing piece is we can't just be talking about giving families more resources. We also have to be helping drive a conversation that equips communities that are experiencing this and the people in the communities that are experiencing this to transform Right. So, and I think that that's where some of the the ideological differences have really rested is, well, if we give them, then they'll never transform. But we're missing something in the middle of, well, what's the part we're missing to create the transformation? And so that's what I've really centered my work around in communities and with families is how do we go to families and say, hey, who are you? And what do you need? And what do we need to know? And come to the table and let's build it together because we don't know what you need but we know you need something. And we want you to help us figure out what that is and let's make it happen.
1: You know, it's interesting because that was one of the factors um, in the hope framework that Dr. Sege was mentioning was that it's humanizing. It's just seeing people for seeing people. people. That's it. It's literally <laughs> it's one so of the blocks was relationships and authentic, authentic relationships of simply just seeing a person. Um, And that's so that was so powerful to me, because I feel like that's, I try to operate in that space most of the time. And, you know, even in my own state here in Tennessee, there's legislation now that's banning unsheltered uh, camping. So anywhere in any state or city owned property, and they actually are going to charge the unsheltered people with a felony if they are. If they are quote unquote caught. And
2: it I I that to me again is just
1: incomprehensible. So
2: criminalizing homelessness. Yes. Yes. And when you think about the compassion that is needed to move us forward as a society, like that is gut-wrenching. And um the the thing, the sad part about that is I mean, it just feels really icky and like morally wrong. But the the sad part about that, that I always want people, we are in desperate need of human capital. Our baby boomers are leaving the workforce. They're retiring. They're going off into the years that they've earned. And we have a skills gap and we have, you know, I mean, an employee, like we need to be tooling a workforce of brilliant people. And, You know, folks who've lived in survival mode for a long time, there are a ton of Rebecca's running around out there. You know, there are a ton of people out there that are in these communities that have sat down and given up or went into deep hiding and don't know how to come out. That if we can, like you said, see them and create experiences for them that help them self-actualize. That's what we need to move our country forward. It isn't to fill up our prisons. <laughs> like, I mean, right. we should, have we not learned anything by now? Lordy.
1: So, so what, ha- what do you feel happens if a system embraces compassion and understands the reality of people living in poverty? It, if, if we were to do what we just talked about,
2: What is it what is the outcome what does it look like i I think you start honestly with some of the systems that we already have and so you know i i have a friend chuck price he has um blue collar consulting but he worked in wapaka county wisconsin and he was leading um dcf there and they might call it something different in wisconsin but they had a trauma-informed paradigm shift as an organization And he started training his um, social workers and family support workers who were typically going into homes and looking for bad guys to go into homes and look for people to help. And they started looking at the adults as the most important people in their children's lives. And they started saying, what do you guys need? And they started finding services and resources. And so that's one example of what happens when we shift our lens and we start looking at human beings as potentially um, as As people with real stories, real challenges and unending potential, right? Like if we can come in here and use the resources that we're already allocating to this and shift the way we're seeing people and shift the way we're showing up and become curious. Like Matthew, I mean, I think that they're, and they, they started to um, save so much money by not pulling all these kids and by working with these families that it was incredible within like, I don't know, two or three years, they hired a ton more fam- ton more helpers to go work because they were saving so much money. And it's like, this is also smart return on investment for taxpayers. Like we were doing things so backwards because we don't understand there's another approach and it's much more simple and it's much more human. Um, humanistic, like you said. And I think that one of the things that poverty is, is creates a unique, um, experience. And I think there's other groups of folks that have also had this, but there's a real shunning and a real shame and a real, um, you know, as a mom, I'd walk into certain places, certain establishments, banks, um, hospitals, doctor's offices, Sometimes, the school system my kids went to was phenomenal, but, you know, sometimes places like that and people wouldn't say it, Matthew, but I get this sense of, we just wish you and your kind would just go away and you feel it in every cell in your body. And so a compassionate shift of, oh, hey, there's a family that's dealing with a lot of stress. We know that because of X, Y, and Z. And so it's really important how we interact with this family it's super vital to the experience that we're both going to have our institution and the family and the outcomes and
1: i think you said it so well when about life experience it's about lived experiences and you know before we were recording we were talking about the impact of this work happening in communities Mm -hmm. with communities not in communities to communities because i do think that lived experience is a driver for connection for anybody any experience right if i if uh, Mm -hmm. on a very service level if i love professional soccer somebody who loves professional soccer we're going to make a connection right but lived experiences drive those same factors but we have to be able to again see each other in a humanizing way in a connecting way to be able to understand that we've experienced those in order for us to both
2: grow that resiliency Mm -hmm. through the
1: relationships.
2: You know, Matthew, um, I know that there's this idea of experts in our culture. And what I want people to kind of walk away with is this idea that people that have studied homelessness, people that have worked with homelessness, people that have, you know, they're not the experts. The experts are people who've experienced homelessness and that goes for addiction that goes for, um, mental health challenges. I mean, whatever kind of mental health experience people are bringing. And so we're not used to thinking that, oh, we need to go to the people that are or have experienced the issues we're trying to solve and get them to drive us. And so, you know, we end up in a lot of, um, political places with laws, policies and allocations of money with a lot of folks who've never had that lived experience. And wouldn't it be a beautiful world if when we needed to create variants to the system or change a system or put a system on hospice, that our first thought was we need to get some lived experience expertise in here to help us create what, what is next. you know, Matthew, going to conferences, I just have always, when I, when I first got into the middle class and I would go to conferences on homelessness or conferences on poverty or, conferences on trauma and I'm like, there's a whole bunch of people here talking about folks that aren't in the room. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to create a world where it was normal that we would have students at our school conferences, Mm -hmm. that we would have parents at our school conferences, that we would have people (laughs) in our conferences that are experiencing the issues we're trying to solve. And they're not just there as participants bystanders, or tokens. Mm -hmm. They're an integral part of how the conference operates, how it flows. They share the main stage. They're informing us, they're guiding us and they're doing it with us. Mm.
1: That's, I mean, that is so powerful. And I think that you're right. Um, In a lot of spaces and places we miss the mark because we're doing things to people and not doing things with and for, Mm -hmm. or doing them with because we've been through it or we've had the experience. I think you know, and it's no secret that I spent 15 years in education and it's uh, no secret that I have a lot of uh, opinions around that. And I think it's a great example about policies and procedures that are placed on, on an entity or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a field that people have never even been in the field. Right. And then on an, on a personal note, I was the, I, I wanted to be the educator And the principle that I hoped I would have had because I was a kid that was in trouble. I was a kid that was constantly doing things and was told to be quiet and all these pieces. So that lived experience, I didn't want to share that with a a student. I wanted to make sure they didn't experience it. I think there's a combination of those balances between supporting people in this, supporting others in this situation or trying to ensure they don't have to experience what you might've experienced. And so, I mean, this, is, this conversation is, is so um, thought-provoking, right? It's My brain is just in deep thought. And, and that, that is why we probably need a break <laughs> because we will be back here shortly um, on the second half of this uh, conversation about the impact of poverty, the impact of systems, and, and we're going to get to, and I can't wait to get to this, Rebecca, is the hope. The what do we do moving forward? How do we continue to work with and next to communities to hope, uh, to build hope and healing um, so that others can uh, stand and have conversations like we're having? So we will take a break and we will be right back. Okay. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past. On history, culture, and trauma, Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests, We'll explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, tune in at iHeartRadio. Listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name, followed by the word podcast.
2: Hey, Alexa. Play
0: Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit.
1: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You're listening to History, Culture and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests, or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran.
1: Well, if you are just coming back with us, you know that I am not Ingrid Cochran. Um, however, I am Matthew Portell, the co-host here of History, Culture, and Trauma. And before the break, we, uh, Rebecca Lewis Pancrets and I were having a great conversation um, around a variety of things. Anything from, we talked about poverty, we talked about the impact of poverty. We were discussing how that the supports that were, were happening during COVID with stimulus and increased access to food and, and resources actually decreased the poverty rate. And yet in by January, when those supports began to be removed, we saw the number began to increase. So we've talked about that. We've talked about the supports of the Department of Children's Services and a lot more. But one thing that we mentioned before we went to the break was we also wanna talk about hope. We wanna talk about what do we do? How do we support and, and be a part of the process of healing and hope in communities with communities. And so Rebecca, thank you for such a great conversation before the break. And, and I do, I do want to get right into that of what we, we discussed before. And that is how do we build resilience and hope and how would that, or how do you feel that could impact the mental health of our communities? Cause it is mental health awareness month. And that has been our mm-hmm. focus all month. Mm-hmm. And all of these pieces play a role in the mental health of our community. So if we do focus and, and we do look at that, what is the outcome and what does it look like? You
2: no, know, Matthew, I was thinking as you were talking, kind of what came in, came up for me was that um, hope is really something, uh, hope is very privileged. and I And when I say that, what I mean is, is that I think there's a whole lot of people running around with a deep well of hope inside of them for their own lives, their own stories, their own family systems. And they don't even understand that that is a part of who they are. And I remember um, the first night that I encountered, um, I'd been in the poverty project for a couple of weeks. And there was just this moment inside of the poverty project where I realized that we had been invited to the table to contribute, to make sure that we could build a community where multiple families could get out of poverty. Matthew, the wellspring of hope that started to bubble up inside of me was like, I just remember being kind of, kind of sideswiped by it because I hadn't ever had it. And I didn't even know that I was running around in a, in a state of hopelessness and hustle. And so, you know, when I think hope is such a powerful contribution, It's such a powerful experience. And I always tell schools and I tell communities the same thing. Hope and purpose are the things that we can't measure, but they create a buoyancy to a process that is undeniable. And it comes from being able to contribute. Hope doesn't come from people saying, I'm going to pay your rent this month. Hope comes from the realization that I have an ability to build the future of, that I want, that I have people that are going to help me do that, and that I have access to opportunities, and I have access to relationships, and I have access to thinking. You know, Matthew, when we were on break, you were talking about a friend of yours that calls you sometimes. You don't always have all the answers, but you're a part of his hope capital because he knows if I've got an issue, I can call Matthew. I can call these eight people and they will help me problem solve that. And so I think that that's something when we talk about resilience that people often don't make the connection to is that resilience is really the presence of hope in a person's life or in a community's life. And when a community starts to become hopeful about a future, when a kid starts to express hopefulness about their future, when a family expresses hope, then we know, okay, resilience is happening, right? And there are many proud, intelligent, hardworking, committed to community, kind, loving, generous, faith-based human beings running around in poverty. And we don't want to hand out. We want to know how to get out. And I think that's really important that we are intentionally Designing experiences where those who are not experiencing poverty and those who are are sharing life together space together and shared power because it can't be come in here and fix me help me, you know, I just always going to need you. And if you leave, then everything's going to fall apart. It has to be how do we solve this together and we need you guys to carry the water because you're the ones that know where the fires are
1: well and and you're doing the work. And I, I would love for you to talk about that because the work that you're doing is showing success. It's mm-hmm. showing outcomes mm-hmm. for people when you're getting multiple people at the table mm-hmm. as true engagement. And that's that's the words of Dr. Sege. I see you. You see me. We see each other. Now let's figure out what we can do together
2: yeah. to solve Whatever issue we're facing, it right? is. whether it's Whatever mental it health, whether right, and so, um, we I got to be a part of a poverty project by accident in 2011, and then um, I graduated teacher college. You always say teacher school, Matthew. I graduated teacher school, and somehow I believe God pointed me to go to work for that poverty project, um, and so I got to start leading my people out, um, and since then. Uh, We have built 14 poverty projects like that across Kansas, and we have um, one in Illinois and perhaps one popping up in Milwaukee. So we're working right now with uh, about 450 parents, probably as close to as many children that come with them. And then in each community that has them, we are bringing middle class people into intentional friendships to walk alongside of these families. Families come to us for two to five years and they build their lives out of poverty and they also um, contribute to building a community that um, is dreaming beyond poverty for everyone. Middle-class people, wealthy people. I mean, we all come in there and we just find this incredible story in one another. And when like this all feels great and it's all great, but it's actually working. We're getting people out of financial poverty. We define that at 200% in um, the Midwest. And so, you know, what does that mean? It means that a single mom like me walks in the door with three little boys and is handed a piece of paper that says to be out of financial poverty, you have to make um, $52,000 a year. And a single mom like me with three little boys doesn't even know anybody that makes that much money. And I blink at them and they're like, just say yes, Rebecca, say this could be you. And then over the next four years, I build that reality and that's what we're doing. And so um, families paying off debt, families increasing earned income, most of the families coming in are making twelve to $20,000 a year. And we're saying to get out, you need to make $50,000, $60,000, $70,000, right? $100,000 a year. And people are like, what? We're doing it. We're doing it through relationships, through contribution, through purpose, through connection, through hard work. And through goal setting, um,
1: so. One thing I didn't hear is that you did it by making people pull them up by pull themselves up by their bootstraps.
2: Do you know what's really fascinating, Matthew? Is um, That's why when I I found the trauma-informed science as I was starting to self-actualize. And so when I, then I stepped into and realized I had eight ACEs and it's like, no wonder I was a drug addict and all of these kind of things. Like, oh, that's what the science says. Thank God I can stop explaining this, right? Like I have eight ACEs and people are like, oh, okay. But then I found the science of resilience that comes from Harvard Institute and that culmination of research there. And I was like, oh, relationships change brains at any age. And I realized that the work that we were doing was always trauma-informed and it was always set up to to build resilience. We just didn't have that language. And the other interesting thing, Matthew, is that we do very little, if any, financial literacy and budgeting, right? Because that's what people think, oh, they need to learn. Like, I'm telling you, poor people are brilliant with their money. They're brilliant with money. Now, um, do they understand how a financial kind of literacy stuff works? No. And when they get the money that they're self-actualizing with, they're going to need that stuff. And so when families need it, we help them with it. But no, it isn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's, hey, chances are you were born into um, poverty. That has created a conditioning. It does not create a mindset. Like I I hate it when people say that. It's created a condition. And you have learned to become masterful at that condition. We want you to understand that you're going to have to continue to maintain that condition while working triple time to get to the next place. If that's what you want to do, right? It's not about, we don't tell families what to do. We don't have this um, very scripted, structured, these are the steps you take. We bring people in and we're like, what's it like for you? And where do you want to go? What's getting in your way? And we start helping people dismantle barriers, and then teaching them to do it themselves, and then teaching them how to do it with other people. That's a long-winded answer, but no, and I
1: mean it's 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 a powerful answer. And and I I, I as I'm sitting here thinking and listening to everything that you're saying, it it makes me go back to the host of this uh, podcast, and that's Ingrid, and how she came into the work, and you know she came into this work by thinking that. Um, parents needed more parenting classes and support because she was looking at the increase of crime rates in black communities. She was seeing the overrepresentation representation the juvenile justice system of of black boys and girls. And then when she realized, hold on a minute, this is intergenerational transmission of historical context. This is systems that have created what you just said, the conditions, right? Right. And if you're not aware or you're not um, in tune to those conditions, mm-hmm. then the cycle can continue because that's that intergenerational mm-hmm. transmission. So I heard that. And it was like you saying to me or, or you saying to us as listeners that it's sometimes also going, listen, it's a condition. This is a condition that you are in. This isn't who you are. Right. It's simply what you were born into or what fallen has into, always right. been done or been fallen into you law i mean we understand the impact the economical impact that COVID has had right. on a lot of families um i saw it myself uh personally within the school that i led so i think we can't just we can't just put all of the weight on the community to heal itself right we also have to step back and look systematically what can we do systematically to also support the paradigm shift that you said mm-hmm. to change the conditions that we can start moving forward? And we did that during COVID and it worked, but now we're stepping back and saying, oh, well, that's over. Thank goodness. But the conditions are going back to where they were. But I think the key that I heard you say is the relationships, the connection and cross community relationships, where again, going back to people seeing people and being able to understand the complexities um, that are involved in any community, right? And in what ways and on a community and what contributes and can creates conditions that a lot of people are managing every single day. And sometimes they were in situations as a kid that was the same situation was being managed every single day. And to be quite honest, I think it's even safe to say that sometimes those conditions are being driven, right, because it is the way the system was designed and how it works. And we, Ingrid and I, have been very honest and looking deeply at the historical context of
2: a lot of these systems, but I have hope.
1: And yes, I, I
2: have hope. hope. I and have I think hope. a lot of this stuff was inherited and it's so many generations you know, down the road now that people aren't even aware because we're just in the middle of all this. And so, um, and I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. It doesn't matter you know, what type of human being you are or what station you find yourself in. What's really important for people to kind of wrap their heads around is that we all want what's best for our towns, our, our cities, our kids, our neighborhoods, our loved ones. Um, and again you and I've talked about this before Matthew but when I kind of got to this point where I realized there's no bad guys there's hurt people that hurt people and um, and so you know there aren't um, evil folks somewhere you know just keeping the system the way it is it's this complicitness that we don't even realize is happening right and the other thing I just kind of like to bring into the space is that you know as I've as I've been out of poverty since 2014 um, I've begun to understand responsibility in a different way and understanding that I am responsible for my own healing. I am responsible for getting my families out of my family out of poverty. I'm responsible for getting my family out of generational trauma. And I'm responsible for helping my friends and neighbors do the same thing. And we talk about mental health, right? that, That we talk about access and barriers and all of those kind of things. And what's really been something that I've been just you know, wrapping my brain around the last few years is how do we create self healing communities, where some of the mental health and therapeutic practices that um, are long and expensive and time consuming, some of those healing arts, if you will, are handed to people in the community and I know that that can be really like a scary concept to people like, oh, you know, you're not qualified to touch my trauma. Well, I guarantee I am, (laughs) you know, like because of the things that I have sat through and gone through. And the other thing is I want people to just consider what if we could learn therapeutic practices and give them to families and people that are experiencing the most trauma and teach them that there are things you can do with one another. So you don't have to only be going to an expert to get better, right? Because we're so terrified of it that we don't wanna to touch it. And we're like, oh, you need to get some help. We need to go here. Awesome, I agree with that. But I know my my son had a mental health crisis. It was pretty serious. And literally we have a lot of resources, Matthew. It was gonna be two weeks before they could even do an intake on him. And at the intake, you know what would have happened, right? It had been an hour and a half of questions. Then they would have gotten him an appointment. And I have resources. And so that can't be our only way to help people that are in mental health crisis. And so with our peaceful schools and families framework that you and I have talked about before, we have been, you know, going in and taking families through therapeutic processes so that they can use those therapeutic processes with their own children and with their community that are not in our space. And I think that that is one of the kind of concepts that we have to start thinking about. And again, I know it can be kind of scary for folks to think about, I'm not qualified. What if we mess somebody up? But I want folks to think about Oxford houses. Oxford houses are run by a bunch of people who are in recovery and um, they're run democratically and they work and they have an 80% success rate. If people stay in an Oxford house for one year and work a program, there's an 80% chance that they will never use or drink again. No government funding, right? Like this is lived experience, guiding lived experience towards hope and healing. I, I spent a lot, I spent the last 11 years in 12-step fellowships that saved my life. And I sit with folks that are, you know, their lives are in shambles. There is a trauma beyond trauma. They are hurt themselves, others. And we sit in there and we do self-healing communities all the time. So it's not so far away from us i think we just have to connect the idea that we've always done that in these certain arenas and we can do that over here with trauma too Which well and I think
1: if, if we look historically and, and even in the indigenous communities like yep. these are history and not just in our country worldwide that community healing through these yes. processes is not new it's not that, new and, and it it didn't take it, it, it took people in communities to wrap themselves around each other to have these processes. And I think there's so much to learn. And this is history, culture, and trauma. So we, we have to look and say, how do we build systems of support? Because I think this is strictly an opinion, but more now and ever, our communities are becoming more fragmented mm-hmm. and becoming whether it's rural, whether you're in an urban setting, whether you're suburban, I think even in my own community, I, I, I know one neighbor on one side and the other one, I don't even know. And it isn't because I haven't reached out. It's just, that's it. That's it. And I think there's a lot of communities where there might have been a tight community many years ago. And there's a perception that it is, but the way that everything is progressing and the use of Technology and the ways it is, and the pandemic, and all these pieces, I, I my hope is that our communities aren't becoming more fragmented, because that's where healing occurs.
2: Yeah, and um, I think it's really easy to the the more um, unsettling the conversations and the polarization and the, um, can't talk about that subject. Can't talk about that subject. Oh, they go to that, you know? And I mean, this hasn't gone for a long time. Oh, you're Irish. Oh, you go to that church. Oh, I mean, right. But you know, with the self-healing communities concept, I just think about, I have three teenage boys and I think about their own challenges and the challenges of their friends. And I'm like, what tools do we give these kids that they can work with one another and they're not always having to go to, cause they don't, I mean, they stop coming to us at some point. Right. And, um, it, and we know that they need enlightened witnesses. We know they need access to safe, supportive, available adults. And, um, but I also just think what tools, practices, approaches, mindsets, belief systems, and supports, can we start, I know it's a wild idea, Matthew, but how do we start to make it to where it's not taboo or scary for us to think about people helping one another heal from their trauma and not have to go to this special person because we're not qualified to deal with that. I get that all the time. I get it in schools a lot when I train in schools and we're not really qualified to deal with that. I'm like, no, but are you qualified to be like a kind loving person that can sit with a kid who's in having a hard time? Like, you know, are you qualified to be a friend? Are you qualified to be um, a safe person? Like you don't have to have letters behind your name to be able to sit, with people that are in a hard place. And most of the time, Matthew, I mean, we're running out of time here, but I just think a lot of the things that we have to wrestle with in our American culture is we're not okay sitting with our own junk. Mm -hmm. We would much rather externalize and talk about all of these things out here. Mm -hmm. And so if we're not okay sitting with my own stuff and I'm not okay with my own mad, sad, glad, and afraid, especially my sad and my afraid, that I'm not gonna be okay sitting with you when you're like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna try and convince you that you should feel better, it's gonna be okay, or just get my distance from you because it makes me feel powerless. And so, you know, there are some really, I think, core tenets and truths that we can work on as a society together that teaches us we don't have to fix and we don't have to run. Mm-hmm we can sit. Mm -hmm. Right. I walked with a kid today who just lost um, a dad. Suddenly Mm. she's about to graduate high school. And I asked her a few questions and then we just walked. We just walked. And at the end she goes, I needed that. Thanks. I don't know how to show up to that. Like it's uncomfortable. Right. But I just showed up. And I think that's the thing that we can take away from the mental health um, story is that we're not showing up because mm-hmm. we don't know how, but what if we do? What if we do already know how and we don't need special training? And you know,
1: you showing up for somebody can also help them show up for somebody else, can somebody help somebody else, show up. Right? I think of my own son shared this yesterday. He said, dad, I cried at school today. And I said, what happened? He said, uh, they, there was a talent show. And one of the kids sang the song that was played at my mom's funeral just a little over a year ago. And he said, I couldn't help but cry. I was so embarrassed. And I said, Why were you embarrassed? He said, Well, kids started making fun of me. I said, Did you tell them why you were crying? And he said, Yes. I said, Did they continue? And he said, No, Thanks. And I said, Thank goodness. He said, Actually, one kid, uh, one of my friends actually put his arm around me. and that's what it's
2: about vulnerability right and sharing sharing in our human experience of pain tragedy remorse regret like and our hope and our freedom and so oh my goodness I, i it 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 just warmed me he's of course he said well
1: somebody said that i liked the person who was singing the song because i was crying and then when i told them they were like oh and that's what i hope that's my hope that our kids and we can continue to model for our kids and each other, and in your words, just show up. Show Show up for our communities, um, show up for individuals, uh, and ultimately show up in this work because it's powerful. Rebecca, thank you so much for your vulnerability. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your expertise. Um, and, And it's such a powerful conversation. Uh, and I really appreciate the way that, uh, that you're looking at hope and you're looking at outcomes and you're sharing those outcomes. So I appreciate it. Thank you. And for everybody listening, thank you for being part of the history, culture and trauma podcast. We appreciate you listening. Thanks for listening
0: to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.